Strangers, I'm so excited to announce that Crimes of the Centuries is back for season three. From the Obsessed Network, Crimes of the Centuries is a podcast all about true crimes that were huge when they happened, but were somehow lost to history. Each week, host Amber Hunt takes a deep dive into one of these cases, putting it into historical perspective and examining its lasting impact on society. We're going to play the first part of the season three premiere episode featuring the story of Victorian England's forgotten serial killer, Dr. Thomas Cream. Follow Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts to hear the rest of this story and more. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The delicate script of the letter's handwriting belied its sinister topic. Directed to a coroner, the message talked of suspected murder. Want Dan Stott's body taken up, the letter read. Postmortem examination made, content stomach analyzed, inquest held, find out cause of death, take charge medicine purchased for Stott last Saturday. The note's signature, a Dr. Cram, suggested a man of medicine was its author. At first, the coroner on the receiving end of this message thought it was ridiculous. Dan Stott had died during an epileptic fit, one of the countless fits he'd had in his lifetime. Usually the fit subsided, but this one didn't. While the death was unfortunate, it was by no means mysterious. But the letters didn't stop. This doctor, whose name turned out to be Cream, not Cram, the misspelling of which eventually served as a clue for investigators, was adamant that Stott died of strychnine poisoning and that the pharmacy which filled his most recent prescription was to blame. Investigators finally acquiesced and did some digging. It turned out that Dan Stott indeed had strychnine in his system, and the pharmacist who'd provided his meds had received letters threatening to expose him as a callous killer. There was something confusing, however. Both the blackmail notes and the tip letters sent to the coroner were written by the same hand. Instead of casting suspicion onto the pharmacist, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream had finally outed himself as a Victorian-era serial killer whose eventual conviction would set legal precedent that would be cited in courts worldwide for decades to come. Nothing in Thomas Cream's early years suggests he would become one of the most infamous killers of his day. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1850 as the oldest of eight children born to William Cream and Mary Elder, 
When he was about four, the family crossed the Great Pond to reach Canada, where Thomas was highly regarded by just about anyone who knew the family, and not in a passive, he just didn't seem to cause trouble kind of way. Crane was the son of a wealthy timber merchant in uh, Quebec City, uh, grew up in a privileged background, church going, <laughs> taught Sunday school, sang in his church choir. That's Dean Job, author of the book, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Hunt for a Victorian-Era Serial Killer. For a while, Thomas worked alongside his father as a shipbuilder, though the work sadly dried up after an unfortunate fire that handicapped the country's shipbuilding industry. When Thomas shifted his focus from ships to medicine, it seemed a wise choice for the oldest son of a wealthy, respected family. He was from a wealthy family, lots of money to send him to the finest medical school in Canada. That school was called the McGill Medical School in Montreal. When Cream arrived, he was a legit adult who had never been in trouble before in his life. In a lot of stories we explore on Crimes of the Centuries, there's usually something telltale, at least in hindsight, pointing to problems with our eventual killers. But that doesn't seem to be the case with Cream. Or maybe if there were tells, his family successfully covered them up to an amazing degree. As in, even after his name became infamous worldwide, there weren't people coming forward from his earliest years to say, yeah, I always knew he was a bad seed. He had detractors, to be sure, but those mostly came from his days in medical school and beyond. He was in his mid-20s and something happened. At this distance, it's difficult to know. But you see over time his hatred of women intensified, perhaps because he was engaged to a young woman soon after he graduated from uh, McGill, and she became pregnant. I'll correct the passive voice there. Cream impregnated her. She didn't just magically become pregnant. Her name was Flora Brooks, and she was the daughter of Lyman Brooks, a businessman who ran the Brooks House, considered the best hotel in Waterloo. Flora and Thomas met in the spring of 1876, when Flora was 23 and Thomas nearly 26. He told her he intended to marry her. Now, this was the Victorian era, when rules about courtship were pretty strict. So as Job writes in his book, the two weren't supposed to see each other without a chaperone, but it seems they figured out a way. In September, Flora fell horribly ill. Her family doctor examined her and broke scandalous news to her father. She'd been pregnant and was ill from an abortion that Cream had conducted. Abortions were illegal in Canada, but as a medical student, Cream would have been taught how to perform one and had access to the necessary instruments and or drugs. But he was also inexperienced because doctors in training didn't get much hands-on experience back in the day, and this abortion was nearly fatal. Lyman Brooks was naturally furious and in a terrible position. If he went after Cream criminally, he risked ruining his daughter's reputation and condemning her to a disreputable life. In retrospect, probably the decent thing to do would have been to turn him in. That would have ended his career pretty early because he could have been charged convicted of, uh, of the abortion. Instead, they forced him to marry their daughter. Lyman gathered some policemen, went to Montreal, where Cream was staying, and insisted that he come back the 60 miles to Waterloo and marry Flora. 
Cream didn't have much of a choice. He reportedly said he was happy to do it, that it had been his intention all along to marry Flora anyway. But his behavior after the shotgun wedding suggests otherwise. Literally the day after the nuptials, Cream left Canada for London to supposedly finish his medical studies. He never saw his new wife again. Unfortunately for her, though, that doesn't mean the two didn't stay in touch, but we'll talk about that in a bit. As Job said, something happened during the med school portion of Cream's life, though there's never been a clear explanation of what that something was. What we do know is that Cream's mother had died when he was entering adulthood, so just before he started med school. His mother died when he was 19. That's old enough that it shouldn't have had a you know, it's not like he was really young at the time, but he was very devoted to his mother. And by all accounts, it was a horrible lingering illness and death. And he was really badly affected by it. His adoration for his mother didn't translate to other women, whom it seems he saw in black and white terms, that whole Madonna horror complex we've seen in other cases. He began frequenting sex workers in med school and carrying around with him lewd illustrations that others found concerning. But the author Job thinks it was the forced marriage to Flora Brooks that perhaps triggered Cream's darkest impulses. I wonder if that somehow started to snowball into a more general hatred of women, because there's no no question, because of the way he targeted women, that... Uh, that he had this burning hatred of women. Abandoning his wife, Cream arrived in London in October of 1876. He'd gotten a degree from McGill, the Montreal school, but a lot of that schooling had been hands-off. He got more hands-on experience at St. Thomas's Hospital, one of the city's oldest and most revered. Not two decades earlier, famed nurse Florence Nightingale had established a nursing school as part of the hospital. Doctors training at St. Thomas would have spent a good deal of time learning about... Formulating their own medicines. That was very much a part of a doctor's training. I think today doctors would understand what's in medication, but they actually compounded medicine and dispensed it. Doctors of the era made their own tinctures and ointments and salves and elixirs, and a number of those concoctions had ingredients that sound crazy to us today, like arsenic and strychnine, which I learned while researching this episode is sometimes pronounced strychnine by people smarter and classier than I. At the time these poisons were used, they were typically included in minuscule doses. Well, in trace amounts, strychnine was, at the time, had therapeutic value. It doesn't now, but in very trace amounts, it was used as a muscle stimulant. In a lethal dose, of course, it, it almost makes the the body, uh, uh, uncontrollable muscle spasms like a runaway train, but uh, it could also be a muscle stimulant. So he knew all about strychnine and uh, he knew what a lethal dose was. He also knew how and where to get the drug, which by the late 1800s had caused enough horrific deaths to be regulated. Strychnine poisoning, by all accounts, is one of the most painful and cruelest deaths you can imagine. It's not like arsenic, which stops the heart in a way that can be mistaken as natural cardiac arrest. Strychnine attacks the muscles, causing violent spasms that come and go. People stricken with it have fits that subside, making them think maybe they'll be okay. 
but then the fits come on again even stronger, so by the time they die, they had known they were dying. Sometimes the agony was extended long enough that a doctor had time to arrive, but the doctor was useless. The only benefit to this prolonged torture was the fact that in between the violent spasms, the patient typically was more or less normal, allowing them to share information about what had happened leading up to the spasms. Anyway, because strychnine was so deadly, everyday people weren't supposed to be able to buy it. You had to be a doctor. Pharmacists were supposed to check a registry of licensed physicians before dispensing any narcotic or poison, and if your name wasn't on that list, you weren't supposed to have your request filled. This wasn't much of an obstacle for Cream, though, because he was a doctor. Granted, he still wasn't on the list of approved physicians in London, but he easily persuaded a pharmacist to look past that and fill his orders because he looked and acted the part. By all accounts, his bedside manner was impeccable, even if his personal behavior raised some eyebrows. Included in that behavior was, of course, his indulgence in sex workers, but also in his pursuits of other women, too. Twice, he seemed to launch into proper courtships of women in London who didn't know he was already married. Both times, his efforts were thwarted because word got back to Flora that her husband was trying to woo someone else. She and Cream wrote letters back and forth, and included in his notes to his missus were pills that he assured her would help her health. She began taking them without telling anyone else, and she quickly fell quite sick. Once she told her father and doctor that she'd been taking medicine sent to her by her husband, they insisted she stop taking it, And while her health improved, she never seemed to fully recover. She died the next year. She was only 24. Her headstone reads, the wife of Dr. Cream. She clung to the respectability that that gave her, even though uh, her doctor later did not report this, but later admitted to Scotland Yard that he suspected Cream had been shipping poison medicine to her that she had taken. I'm confident, given the evidence, that this was his first victim. She was nowhere near his last. Thanks so much for listening. To hear the rest of Episode 1, find and follow Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts. 